All right, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to, this is a continuation from last Sunday night on the perpetuity of the Lord's church, as it's stated here in Matthew 16. Of course, in this instance in the scripture, we leave the word church is used in an institutional sense. It's not talking about a universal church. It's talking about the institution or the organism of the church. And it speaks of all churches down through time since the first church. And so what Jesus is saying, there will always be churches on earth until he comes forth. So Matthew 16, let's read verses 13 through 19 again. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, some and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give unto thee, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to open your word tonight. Thank you for a complete revelation that you have given to us. And I pray as we look at this topic again this evening, I pray that you would give us wisdom and handling and help us to rightly divide thy word and make application to our own time, day, and our own lives for our good and thy glory. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about perpetuity, again, the, the, the meaning of perpetuity is the state of character is something that is perpetual, endless, or indefinitely long duration or existence or eternal. And... You know, once, once the, there's the rapture of the saints, you don't find the word church again in the Bible. I don't believe there's going to be churches during the tribulation period. People are going to be, actually, there's going to be multitudes of people saved during that time. If you read Revelation carefully, it talks about those multitudes coming out of great tribulation that are going to be under the altar, beheaded for the cause of Christ. So there's going to be multitudes saved the gospel is going to preach, even there's, at one point it says there's an angel flying through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel. 144,000 Jews are going to be sealed in their foreheads and they're going to go around the world preaching the gospel. So there's going to be, the gospel is going to be preached during that time, but many of those are people that get saved who refuse the mark of the beast are going to be fleeing for their lives. Uh, so there's no church mentioned anywhere from Revelation 4 to, to the end of the book, until you get to Revelation 22 where it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And that's, of course, talking about still today. So, but the church, Jesus said the church um, would, you know, would be, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So until the Lord comes for us and we make up His churches in this dispensation, we call this kind of the age of the churches, or some people refer it to as the age of grace. Uh, until that time, there will be churches, and this is what Jesus meant. And, uh, of course, we learned that a church is, 
is a, an assembly of believers. It's, a lo, it's, it's almost always referred to as local. Uh, sometimes it's used in the institutional sense. Uh, you know, um, uh, for example, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, it talks about the church there. It's used in an institutional sense just as the word wife is used in an institutional uh, sense because there's no such thing as a universal wife or an invisible wife or, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and we mentioned that when the Lord declares the gates of hell would not prevail against it, he means there always be because churches because they're built on the immovable rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I would draw your attention to verse 18 where it says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter. The word Peter, the name Peter is the Greek word Petros, which means basically a rock or a piece of rock or stone, something that's movable. Of course, the Catholic Church says their church is built on Peter. <laughs> That's why it's constantly changing. You build things on a man, and it, it, it never stays the same. You know, the Catholic Church has been changing forever since it came into existence. Uh, a little pamphlet here, it's, it's, it's dated, but by, written by a guy by the name of Stephen Testa. And it talks about, the, the, gives the dates of the times that different doctrines of the Catholic Church came into existence. You know, that they are not the same. They have not been the same or consistent throughout their history. Uh, you know, we believe that our church, like ours, have been the same throughout history. They haven't changed. But here we have, you know, they began in 300 A.D., prayers for the dead and the sign of the cross. That began 300 A.D. Of course, wax candles were introduced in the church about 320. Veneration of angels and dead saints, 375. The Mass, 394. Worship of Mary, 431. With, of course, uh, the guy that was Augustine was the big promoter of that. Purgatory was first established by Gregor the Great, about 593. Um, prayers directed to Mary, around 600 A.D. Uh, a pope, a title pope, was given in the year 610. Uh, kissing the pope's feet began in 709. And, of course, that was a custom of the pagan emperors. You know, they would have their subjects come and kiss their feet. So, well, of course, the Roman pontiff became an emperor, really, and uh, he was promoted to that. Uh, worship of the cross and images and relics, 788, holy water, 850, uh, canonization of dead saints, 995, and we can go on. Celibacy was not something until 1079. Some pope declared celibacy, you know. And, 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 you know, I could go on and on and on, but, you know, even up to the modern day, they, they can consistently change their doctrines. Why? Because it's built on a man. It's built on a man. And, and, we, we, and we talked about, you know, that rock, that, or that stone is something you can move. It's movable. But something that's founded on the rock, Christ Jesus, you know, the, the word Petra, speaks of a ledge or a cliff, or something that cannot be moved. And, of course... First uh, Corinthians ten four tells us that rock that followed them was Christ. Another foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So First Corinthians three eleven. So you know churches that are built on the rock, the churches of Christ do not change. You don't change. And I notice the second thing here as we consider the the perpetuity. He promised the churches would prevail against the forces of hell. Again, in verse eighteen. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You realize, and we are living 
in foreign territory. The world hates us. The world hates churches. Now, there was a period in time where in our country that churches were welcome because of the influence of Christian people in our country. Of course, you know, that had begun to change in the early 19, late 1800s and early 1900s, and liberalism began to gain great footholds in our country. And, and of course, there was still a formal form of church that was liked. But churches like ours have never really been liked. Because we are, the gospel confronts the sin of the world. It opposes the devil. And the Bible tells us that the devil is the God of this world. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. So we have an adversary. You know, Ephesians 4 and verse uh, 14. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. The Bible says there, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. There are men out there that want to deceive you and I. They want to lead you astray. They want you to follow them. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow God. You see, there are a lot of people or guys or men in ministry who want you to follow them. That's why it's so often when a church, a pastor has to move on or gets into problems or something, the church folds. Or is, is damaged so bad that it's irreparable. It's because they're built on a man. They're following a man. And so, you know, there are those who want to deceive. Uh, Ephesians 6, Paul instructed the uh, Ephesian uh, believers that, you know, be, my, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And these people at Ephesus understood what Paul was talking about. They had in Ephesus the statue, which was one of the seven wonders of the, 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 of the world, the statue of Artemis. And along with their, their worship of Artemis, there was, there was the, you know, brothels and, and uh, uh, temple prostitutes, both male and female. And, and they, had, they had also a, it was like a, a, a place where the market was. And to get into the market... You had to offer some incense. From what I understand, you had to offer some incense to the emperor. Do you know what that meant? Christians didn't get to go into the open market. Unless they would compromise themselves and offer incense. If they were people who had business to, to selling like a farm, uh, you know, a... a, a um, a farmette where you sold produce, you know, they wouldn't be able to sell it in the market. And so there was this, this pressure that was put on them, and he says, you need to, you need to you know, put on the whole armor of God. You see, we, have, we, have, we, live, we live in a world that is hostile to God's people. Jesus said they hated me, 
they will hate you. John 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says that the God of this world blinds the minds of them that believe not. And he turns to those people against the Lord and his people. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Uh, thereby, for it is no great thing of his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to the works. So, so he's got these 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 uh, ministers who, who, who this you know uh, uh, false apostles and deceitful workers that transform themselves into ministers of light. They pretend to be preachers of the gospel, and 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 what they're doing is corrupting people. In fact, Paul, in, when he was speaking to the Ephesians elders in Acts 20.30, he said that among yourselves there will rise up those that teach perverse doctrines. Among yourselves. You know, and in the last century, the 1900s, some of the most subtle and destructive forces to do industrial churches have come through new methods. New methods of training men for ministry, through schools via parachurch ministries outside the local church control and oversight. Professors, modern-day evangelists, that don't have to daily work with people and their burdens and their hurts and their heartaches. Hence, they don't have to apply all the counsel of God. And they are honored as smarter than the local church pastor. And they are honored as having more authority than the local church pastor. I mean, you're just a pastor of a church. And you went to one of them Bible institutes. And they're not as near as... And, and the pastor, the local church pastor, he isn't near as an exciting preacher. Because after all, the pastor has to preach three or four times every week. Where the evangelist just can preach. I mean, really, an evangelist can have seven messages and just go from church to church, and he can hone those messages. You say, really? Yeah, I know. Because I was in that for a while. I preach some of the same messages quite often. And I've known evangelists who I've gone from different churches to listen to that preach the same message every church I went to. And the pastor has to prepare a new message every service and has to face the people he preaches to. You know, if I started preaching something that was a little off, I'd have some people talking to me out of this church. Which, you know what? That's a good thing. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. You see, these in parachurch ministries, they really don't have accountability. They really don't have accountability. They're an end, kind of an end to themselves. But the Lord gave us a pattern in the New Testament, and if we follow it, we are assured of His power... And he promised there would always be New Testament churches. Um, 
you know, although, although the church of Jerusalem is no more, and we know from the scriptures that the church of Jerusalem, from it, Philip went out, went down to Samaria and preached the gospel. People got, started getting saved and being baptized. And then Peter and John, who were pastors at the church of Jerusalem, they went down there and, and established the work. They authenticated the work. And, of course, we know that, you know, and the Bible doesn't tell us everything where churches were started, but we know Philip preached in other places. Uh, and we know that at one point it says there were churches in Judea and Samaria and other towns. So I don't know how many churches there were in, in, within, you know, five or six years or, or what the time period was, but there were some churches scattered around in the land of Israel. And then, then uh, of course, uh, uh, some went as far as Antioch. Some of the believers that were scattered about the persecution went as far as Antioch and started, and people were getting saved there. And the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas over there. Barnabas was a pastor. And he established the work. And he sent for Tarsus and brought Saul, or Paul, who would later become Apostle Paul, to Antioch. So the church at, you know, we could say the church at, at Jerusalem, they started the church, churches in Samaria and Judea and then Antioch and Syria. But there's no New Testament church in Syria today. I was reading a, about a missionary uh, some years ago, and he said there is not one church that he knows of in Syria. One New Testament church in Syria today. But, again, we know from the book of Acts that the church of Syria sent out Barnabas and Saul. And they went. And they, they went out as evangelists or missionaries. And they started churches in other places like Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Colossae, Laodicea, you know, all these places, actually Paul, I don't believe, started the church in Laodicea, but there was a church in Laodicea started at some point. Um, and these churches then in, other, in turn started other churches. They, they, this, this was the command. See, this, was the, this is part of the Great Commission, that you teach them to observe all things, and one of those observing all things is, is when you get evangelized and get baptized and organized into the church, you need to be sending out others to start other churches, doing the same thing over and over again. And so this pattern continue, and there are still churches like the church of Jerusalem that Jesus started. Now, you might say, well, doesn't that break down somewhere? Well, it's sort of like this. You know, Callan Byler, I could say, he could say my father is Nathan Byler. He could say my, fa- his, my father is Jason Byler. And I could say my father is Jefferson Byler. And, and he would say my father was Joseph Byler. And who is the son of, I don't know. Now, I'm sure if I went back into Byler genealogy book, which dad had, or one of the kids have, I could find out who dad's dad was. But somewhere along the way, it's going to be lost in history. But does that mean there wasn't a father? No. No. You know, somewhere along the way, we all go back to Noah, or one of his sons. So in the same way, there has always been 
New Testament churches through the centuries that kept the faith and passed on. This is the Lord's promise to us. Which, by the way, even our enemies testify to. Even other denominational leaders testify to it. Let me give you a few illustrations. Roman Catholic Cardinal Stanislas Hoshes. I don't know if that's how you say it. He was from 1504 to 1579. He was one of the most significant figures of the Roman Catholic Church counter-Reformation. In other words, he was kind of appointed to, to, to counter the Reformation. He was official representative of the Pope, presiding officer of the Council of Trent. And of the Anabaptists, he said this, quote, If the true religion were to be judged by the readiness and cheerfulness which a man of any sect shows in suffering, the opinions and persuasions of no sect can be truer or sure than those of the Anabaptists. Whence there have been none for these 1,200 years past. Now, think about this. He was living in 1500s, and he's saying for 1,200 years past. That takes you back to at least 300. So 1,200 years past that have been more grievously punished or that have more cheerfully and steadfastly undergone and even offered themselves to the most cruel sorts of punishment than these people, unquote. He says they, they are from at least 300. And again, the cardinal gives his unsolicited and clear testimony to perpetuity of the Lord's churches when he says of our Baptist forefathers, quote, were it not that the Baptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with a knife during the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater numbers than all the reformers, unquote. There are some of the historians that say that the Catholics and the Inquisition and all their persecutions through the years probably murdered maybe 85 million, maybe as many as 150 million. There's different, you know, there's no way of really knowing for sure. But he's admitted that they were grievously tormented and cut off with a knife. This was a Catholic who hated. Baptist. He hated reformers. I mean, if he hated reformers, he hated the Baptists a lot worse, more. Okay, testimony of an educated host, and this is a group of men here in the United States uh, that, that uh, published a history uh, called Crossing the Centuries. There was a Cardinal Gibbons, he was the Catholic Church, a Patrick Healy of the Catholic University of America, Theodore Roosevelt, president, who was the president of the United States, former president, and some 11 eminent scholars served contributors to this volume called Crossing the Centuries. And it was copyrighted in 1912 by a Mr. King. And among other things, it, it says this about the Baptists. Uh, this is what they say. Quote, of the Baptists, it may be said they were not reformers. These people, comprising bodies of Christian believers known under various names in different countries are entirely distinct and independent of the Roman and Greek churches, have had an unbroken continuity of existence from apostolic days down through the centuries. Throughout this long period, they were bitterly persecuted for heresy, driven from country to country, disenfranchised, deprived of their property, imprisoned, tortured, and slain by the thousands. Yet they served not from their New Testament faith, doctrine, 
and adherence, unquote. John Ridpath, well-respected American educator and historian, uh, he was a Methodist. He was a president, professor of a Methodist university, DePaul University in Indiana, for quite a few years. Um, he wrote a book called History of the World. It's a monumental work, as well as many other works. Methodist is in this denomination affiliation. This is what he said, quote, I should not readily admit that there was a Baptist church as far back as 100 A.D. Because although, without doubt, there were Baptists then, because as all Christians were then Baptists, unquote. He says it's brought back as 100 A.D., and he says that all Christians then were Baptists. Um, trying to remember the guy's name that wrote the book Sacred Betrayal. He wrote American Chris Red. James Beller, historian. Uh, in that book, Sacred Betrayal, um, yeah, now what was I going to say? I forget about it. Um, oh, he said for the first 300 years, the only kind of church that existed was a local church. There were no church hierarchies. In other words, no denominations, no conventions. You know, we have the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, they say they're not a denomination, but they operate like one. And they have strong pull and a lot of control over the Southern Baptist churches. Um, but, you know, but for the first 300 years, there was no universal teaching, a note of universal church-type instruction. It was all local church. And this is what this course of scriptures teach. Now, I don't, always, I don't believe there were always New Testament Baptist churches from apostolic time because the historians say so. I believe it because Jesus said there would be. But the historians give credence to it. They verify what the Lord said. So, I want you to notice in a third thing, and that is the purpose of perpetuity. Verses 13 through 17. Uh, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Pella, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. You see, the purpose of the perpetuity of the Lord's churches is the preservation of the gospel. The preservation of the true gospel. Peter is giving us here the truth of the gospel. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, You know, so it's the preservation of the gospel. The Great Commission is given to the churches, or the, you know, the church or, or the churches, and, and that people would come to the knowledge of truth just like Peter did. You know, in a lot of churches today, people are getting a false gospel. They're getting a false gospel. How does one come to true salvation? Number one, there has to be a knowledge of God. A knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Then there has to be a knowledge of your own condition. And then he has to be received by faith. And 
And, and with the infiltration of new evangelicalism and fundamentalism into Baptist churches, many of the distinctions of Baptist churches have been compromised. They've been compromised. Now, now let me just give you a little background here. Fundamentalism was a movement started in the early 1900s. When I was in Bible school, you know, I was given these two books, The History of Fundamentalism and The Fight for Fundamentalism. I thought they were great books. I don't think they're so great today. I mean, they do give a history of, of fundamentalism, but it's a movement of men. You see, fundamentalism was a reaction to liberalism coming into our churches through, in, through the denominations. Well, the denominations aren't true churches anyway. They're not true churches anyway. A lot of them teach a false gospel. You know, baptism of babies, infants, you know, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, they all baptize infants. There's a, there's a mudding and a, 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 a corruption of the gospel in that. Uh, and, and so the fundamentalism came along, and this fundamentalism is a movement that's basically built on what they call the five fundamentals. And, and let me give them to you here. Inerrancy of Scripture. And already I have a problem. There's nothing said about preservation of Scripture. So we don't have to believe in the preservation of Scripture? No, you don't. So you can be a fundamentalist and use another version of the Bible. I know of people that call themselves fundamentalists that use other versions of the Bible. They call themselves fundamentalists. Uh, Bob Jones University was a fundamentalist school. And always held to a different Greek than what was used to translate our King James Bible. And if you don't believe me, ask Pastor Webb. He was one of those guys. But he could get over it. Like I got over the fundamentalism thing. Uh, inerrancy of Scripture. The virgin birth. Okay, that's okay. But, okay, the blood atonement. The resurrection of Christ. The second coming of Lord Jesus. Now let me say something. Even a Catholic could adhere to those five things. You see, fundamentalism was a mixture of people from different denominations. There were Presbyterians. There were, you know, there's fundamentalist Lutherans. There's fundamentalist uh, Methodists. And Methodists, most of Methodists believe you can lose your salvation. Presbyterians believe in Calvinism. You know, you're predestined and all this stuff. Lutherans believe in, they don't believe in transubstantiation, or they do believe in transubstantiation. Supposedly it's different than how the Catholic Church teaches about, you know, they call it, I don't know, one of them calls it consubstantiation. And I don't know what the difference is, but there's supposedly a difference, you know, about the, 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 the elements of the Lord's Supper turning, actually turning to blood and, and body, you know. Anyway. But as, see, as long as you were a separatist, separatist and were separate from liberalism, in other words, denying the, if you deny these basic doctrines, then you're considered a liberal. If you didn't believe in, 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 in the inerrancy of the scriptures, or if you didn't believe in a virgin birth, you can't be saved. Because you have a Jesus who is just a man. He's not a sinless man. Uh, you know, the blood atonement. 
the resurrection of Christ. Again, proves his deity, proves he is God. And, of course, the second coming. So if you don't believe in one of these things, you know, you can't be a saint. You're, you're considered liberal. So, so these were just, this was just a reaction. And, it, and it, it, you know, there were, there were some leaders. A lot of them were Baptists, but they all had schools. And these, these uh, liberal teachings that, um, that Jesus wasn't God, denying the miracles of the Bible, began to infiltrate the schools and the denominations. And so these, some of these leaders, there was a guy, a Presbyterian by the name of, uh, Mechon, who was in Princeton University, and he, and he wrote a lot of different papers, and he was considered a great fundamentalist. He's Presbyterian. They baptized babies. See, I don't see anything in this about baptism. Nothing. And these groups all believed in a universal church. And so, you know, these people became popular that were fighting this liberalism in these schools, and they were big-name preachers. And so a lot of Baptists, they, they had conferencing, and a lot of Baptists got caught up in this fundamentalist movement. Now, and of course, it promotes ecumenism, Ecumenism, cooperation among those of other belief systems. And the only way you can justify that is to misinterpret 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 12. First Corinthians 12 and verse 12 says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now look at verse 24. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now we understand this scripture that the He's speaking here of a local church. The local church is a body that has many members, just like your body has many members, but it's one body. Well, see, the fundamentalists and the denominations take this scripture to mean that we are baptized into the universal church, which they call the body of Christ. So that's all believers in this dispensation. So you're baptized into that by the Spirit. It's a spiritual baptism. See, the only problem I have with that is Ephesians 4 says there's one baptism. Only one. You know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't really a baptism. It was a recognition. Uh, It's called baptism, but it wasn't a Baptism as we understand what baptism really is. And, and so, uh, and, and then 
if you look at verses 24 through 27, uh, look, at, look at verse 25 and 26 in particular, that there should be no schism in the body. Okay, let's say this, this body is all the people around the world that are saved. The body of Christ. That's the church. Universal. Oh, we still have our local church, but there's also this universal church. And, and then it says, and that's the body of Christ, that there should be no schism in the body. Let me ask you a question. Do all the churches around here agree on everything? Well, if there's not going to be any schisms, we need to agree with all the churches that are around here. That's impossible, Pastor. Yeah, it is. It is. It's unrealistic. Can't happen. And do your members suffer with the members of people you don't even know? I mean, there's no practical application to these verses if that's what it is. And so, again, if you take the tone text of the book, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, as Paul begins writing to this, he's writing it under the church of God, which is at Corinth. And in verse 27, he says, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. You are a body, church of Corinth, you are a body of Christ, and you've got many members in that one body. That's what a church is. So they compromised. So fundamentalism compromised the local church issue. Uh, they promoted this cooperation. They compromised on baptism, accepting baptism from non-Baptist churches. They compromised in personal holiness and separation with an emphasis on evangelism. You know, you keep the main thing the main thing. And there are doctrines that are essential, and there are doctrines that are non-essential. By the way, in 1947, then, there was an organization that started, another man-made movement called New Evangelicalism. And the big face in New Evangelicalism was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham promoted a false gospel, easy believism. And many fundamentalists in this day and time, if you listen to them carefully, that's the same message basically they preach. Pray this prayer. Ask Jesus into your heart. The Bible doesn't even say that anywhere. You believe in your heart. You don't ask Jesus in your heart. You believe in your heart. That believing in the heart is a surrender. That's a repentance. But see, repentance is tossed aside. See, New Evangelicalism focused more on cooperation and, and, and getting people in, and out of that New Evangelicalism came the seeker-friendly churches, where they completely watered down and asked people what they wanted in a church. That's the fruit of that. So, so they started separating again. The doctrines, they laid aside the doctrines of separation, which, which again, if you're going to be a... If you're going to be a universal church guy, to be consistent, you have to get along with everybody. There can't be any schisms in the body. But you know, if you apply it to the local church, that's not an issue. That's not a problem. 
if you practice church discipline, which the Bible again commands. There's, there's unity. You know, there is unity in our church. I mean, we're different people from different backgrounds. But we have a unity around the person and work of Christ and the Word of God. So these non-essentials, of course, baptism is now a non-essential, has become a non-essential. You know, these, and they have this idea that people can, they can lead people to the Lord and they can never go to church today in their life, but they're saved. And they have no interest in going to church, but they're saved. Hyper-dispensationalism, where you carve the Bible up into neat little pieces. You say, you know, the Old Testament doesn't carry over in the New. Well, 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 yes, it does. Because John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament, so to speak. Uh, that's, that's what the fundamentalists say. He's the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet. So then John's baptism can't be authentic. But what's funny about that is Jesus accepted it. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, all of them accepted it. And God said he was a man sent from God. And Luke tells us that, that all the prophets were until John. Meaning John was not a prophet of the Old Testament. And so... So we cut the Bible up in these neat little pieces where we say the Gospels then have to be part of the Old Testament and so we don't get the teachings of, the, of, of, of Christ concerning the law. So we've thrown out the law which, he, which Christ reinforced in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we've watered down the holiness of God. And all we have left is Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we have a watered down. You know, John, and then you you also, of course, can credit the Sermon on the Mount, which subtly discards any accountability to the moral law given in the Old Testament, which Jesus restated and strengthened, and gave the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. You know, the letter of the law said, uh, if you look, the letter of the law said, thou shalt not commit adultery. The spirit of the law says, don't look on a woman to lust after her in your heart. And so this is where easy believism has, this is what has brought about, is easy believism that has, that has brought about thousands of thousands of professions without real faith like Peter had. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and he goes on, and, and in John 6, he said, you know, when, when the disciples, some of the disciples were going away from Jesus, and, and Jesus asked the question, will ye also go away? And he says, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we are sure, thou art that Christ. See, Peter understood repentance. He understood a change of the will. He understood the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, this rise of fundamentalism and new evangelicalism 
in the early 20s, 30s, and 40s with Billy Graham's brought these new methods of soul winning, and it's corrupted and filled our churches with unsaved people who do not understand the person of Christ or repentance or the meaning of baptism. See, the view of church with, is now with human perception. It's not spiritual discernment through the eyes of faith. You see, for a church to maintain its purity, its candlestick of one of the Lord's churches, it must contend for the faith. Because almost every New Testament book will tell you something to the effect that there's a danger of the churches being corrupt. We read Ephesians 6. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy, said the last days, perilous times shall come. He said, men shall expect... Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly in the last days that uh, they'll, they'll forbid the uh, marrying and, 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 you know, and, and these other spurious doctrines. Uh, Peter in Second Peter talks about, foretells the apostasy. Jude says we must earnestly contend for the faith because there's going to be those that deny the Lord G- Jesus Christ. Deny the Lordship of Christ. And so a biblical church is one then that contends for a regenerated church membership and New Testament baptism. But see, with the rise of these other movements, we have relegated baptism to the shelf of a non-essential. And we've lost, as Baptist churches, we've lost our distinction. You see, what we were known for throughout history was rebaptizing those who came from apostate churches. Of course, Baptist churches historically never accepted baptism, even if it was by immersion. Because, by the way, the Catholic Church immersed up until... Some up until the 1300s. So their mode was right, but their doctrine was corrupt. And so Baptist churches would not accept their baptism. That's why they were called Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. But see, we've lost that today because baptism is no longer essential. And I must stop here tonight. We'll pick up here next week. We're going to look at baptism. It's not a non-essential. It is part of the gospel. In fact, it is the true symbol of Bible Christianity. So the Lord promised the perpetuity of His churches. There would always be churches like ours. And we must earnestly contend. We have enemies in this world. And if we let our guard down, the enemy will come in like a flood. And we'll just become another social club like so many are in the world tonight. Without the truth that can really save souls. Might God help us to earnestly confess.